Well, good morning, church. It's great to be able to gather with you wherever you find yourself tuning in to this live stream, whether you're sitting on a couch or whether you're in your bedroom with a cup of tea. I hope you have a Bible with you somewhere where you can read along with what's happening here in 1 Peter this morning. But for those who haven't met me before, my name is Dan Patterson. I live in Brisbane, but I have the tremendous privilege of working with Ravi Zacharias and the team at RZIM of speakers that is about a hundred of us now all around the world, trying to wrestle with the big questions of our time to help unbelievers and Christians think through the key barriers to the Christian story. And today, given what is going on all around the world, I want to pick up on this coronavirus age to say, how is it that we can make sense of turbulent times. I mean, here in Australia, we have gone over the last few months from droughts into horrendous bushfires, into floods, and now into a global pandemic where people are experiencing different degrees of lockdown, and it is having a huge fallout in our lives. There are hundreds of thousands of people in our country who now find themselves without work. There is mounting uncertainty about the future. There is fear looming outside as we're huddled together inside afraid of the death or perhaps even the danger of putting others at risk that looms outside our own walls. And it is a time like this where we have all kinds of questions. My friend and colleague Sam Albury commented that we've had this tendency to prioritize the individual over the community and the virtual over the physical for so long now. How strange that we find ourselves in a situation where that is forced on us to such a huge degree and many people locked in their homes are feeling alone. I wonder how you're feeling right now. Uncertain, afraid, unsure where God is in the midst of all of this. It raises these powerful questions that I want to wrestle with this morning and to do so, to draw us back into our own Christian story where God speaks in the midst of tumultuous times to help us make sense of who we are and how we're to respond. And this morning I've chosen a text from 1 Peter. It would have just been read to you in chapter 1 verses 3 to 9. If you've got a Bible with you, please open. We're going to read along with parts. What I hope to do in wrestling with a theology of suffering this morning is try and parse out what Peter, as one of the leaders of the early church, a close follower of Jesus, what he has to say to Christians who are enduring difficult and dark times to help them navigate their present cultural moment because I think the phrases, the ideas that he picks up on here are tremendously important for where we are right now. So with all of that in mind, let's dive into the text to see what 1 Peter has to say to us. And I want to begin this exploration by asking a question of the text. What difference does the Christian story make in our coronavirus age? And I think Peter opens with a sounding clarion call of hope, of hope. Read with me in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Hone in on that phrase, an inheritance that can never perish. One of the things that the coronavirus is doing right now is helping us realize the tremendous fragility of life. That even if we survive this pandemic, 
there is still the reality that 100% of us are going to die. None of us escape the clutches of death. And we're coming face to face with this grim reality and all that it makes us do in reevaluating the priorities of our life and wondering what is ultimately going to stand. And in the context of people huddled together in fear of their homes, not unlike the disciples on Holy Saturday, we are approaching the Easter moment in our seasonal calendar. It's Palm Sunday today, the small palm behind me, precisely because it's Jesus who declares himself king by riding on a donkey's colt into Jerusalem on this Sunday. He's saying that he has power He has a kingdom. He has a different way that life should ultimately be under the reign of God. And right now we are experiencing the power of death. And at Easter time, it clashes with the power of Jesus Christ, who claims the keys of death and Hades by his own resurrection from the dead. And so in the middle of this, Peter begins these beleaguered Christians. He warns them, he encourages them, he lifts them up by giving them an anchor for their hope that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. That because of Easter, the Christian story says that death has been demoted. That what used to be a full stop in the sentence of reality, now it is just a comma. And death is a doorway into another world, into the possibility of life with God for all eternity. That if Jesus rose from the dead, then death is not the final word, that there is life after death, that he who believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. Again and again, both Jesus and the biblical authors right across the New Testament keep drawing our vision as we're suffering and struggling in the world to an eternal perspective to recognize that this life here, it's fragile. It can be taken away. It is like a vapor that appears for a little while, but then it vanishes. That we all are like grass that will fade away. But what is done by God stands for eternity. And he wants to draw our hope, our focus, not on this life here, but on the thing that can outweigh any present suffering or struggle or uncertainty. Yes, there is uncertainty now, but there is a greater certainty, an end game, a final vision of reality, whereby we will be raised with Christ to live with him forever. Death does not win. Now, there are a ton of people in our culture that don't have this as part of their story. They believe in some secular vision of the world, a world without God, where death is the final word, and that's it. It's a depressive, destructive interruption to reality that brings us to naught. But we have a hope that transcends death, and this should be animating our Christian action in the present and our Christian witness to offer to our friends and our neighbors that this Easter, they don't have to be afraid of death. They don't have to be afraid of an uncertain future. Why? Because they know what will be theirs for all eternity, an inheritance that can never perish, kept in heaven for you. That is the anchor for our hope in this coronavirus age. But we all, even still having this hope, are filled with questions. Why? Why does God permit these things to happen? Why are we seeing suffering on such a huge scale? If he cares, why doesn't he intervene? There is a huge amount of uncertainty that comes with our feelings right now. And you know what? The Bible doesn't ask us to play down those emotions. No. Another phrase here, verse 6. In all this you greatly rejoice, in this final hope, 
though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief. To suffer grief. The Bible is not silent on the theme of suffering and struggle. In fact, it is a mega theme of the Christian story, so much so that entire books of the Bible are devoted to people trying to process, where is God in the midst of my pain? What the Bible does is it doesn't shut down our questions. It opens us up. It invites us to ask them. Think of some of the great questions of the scriptures, like where King David in Psalm 10.1 says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Think of the grand book of Lamentations, the people of Judah wrestling with where is God in the midst of the destruction now of our great city and of the temple and of our hopes as we find ourselves carried off into Babylon. Think even of the psalm that Jesus quotes on the cross that we will celebrate at Good Friday in just a number of days. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Bible gives full voice to the grand register of our emotions and reactions and the uncertainty that we all feel, and it invites us to voice our complaints in the midst of our uncertainty. It doesn't give us all the answers. There is room in the Christian story for mystery, the recognition that God is bigger than we are, his thoughts above our thoughts, his ways above our ways. And if the story of Job in the Old Testament teaches us anything, it's that God has reasons for allowing some of the suffering that we see that we're just not privy to. That because God is so much bigger than us, able to see through the corridors of time, many of the things that are his to know are not ours to know. And so Christians are invited into this space in the destruction that we're witnessing to the vocation of lament. Uh, Recently in a Time magazine article just this week, N.T. Wright said, This is the great invitation for Christians at this cultural moment is to lament, to cry out, God, why this? Why coronavirus? Why the economic uncertainty? Why the suffering? Why the homelessness? Why people not being able to feed their families? And in doing so, to recognize that we are in fact carrying the very heart of God who himself grieves over the brokenness of this world. We don't have all the answers. But read on just a little bit further. This third phrase in 1 Peter. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That phrase, these have come. These Griefs, this suffering, these trials, these have come. And what Peter does here, he steps in to actually try and offer something of an explanation. In fact, in a couple of chapters, 1 Peter 3.15, he'll say, Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reasons for the hope that you have. To try and offer an explanation for why you can believe in this hope, in this God, in this eternal vision, even in the midst of struggle and suffering now. And so he seeks to step into the place of offering some kind of explanation. The most common question I've been asked over the last number of weeks is, if God, why coronavirus? 
If God is all loving and all powerful, why would he allow something like this pestilence, this pandemic, this plague to be able to come and to ravage the human race right across the world? And this is a deeply meaningful question that traces back thousands of years of people have been asking, how can we believe in this kind of God when suffering is so real? Now, this isn't some kind of armchair question right now. It's being asked from a very desperate, visceral place as people are wrestling with. And I want to give honor to the reality of the pain behind the question. But let me say maybe a few things that might be helpful in responding to a question like this. Uh, Philosophers often divide questions of suffering into two categories. Moral evil, the suffering that comes to us at the hands of other human agents and their decisions... And then natural evil, or the suffering that comes to us at the mercy or hands of nature itself. And so something like a pandemic, something like the coronavirus fits into this category of natural evil. But play out that language for a second. What do we mean when we say natural evil? Because in a sense, if something is natural, if it's the way it's always been, then how can we really call it evil. If the physical realm is all that exists, time, space, matter, and energy. If, in the words of Carl Sagan, the universe is all that ever was, is, and ever shall be. If it is true that this is a closed materialistic universe, then suffering itself has always been part of this world's story. Nature is read in tooth and claw. It's strange that we would have this view to even call it natural evil or have this intuition that this is not the way that things should be. The secular story can't say much to this at all. On the secular story, this is the way that things are meant to be. But the Christian story can give voice to why we have this intuition that something has gone wrong. Because something has gone wrong. You see, according to the book of Genesis in the Christian story, God made our universe as a theater of meaning. And any world that is meaningful ultimately has consequences to it. Any world that is full of meaning always has consequences. Why? Because any world where our decisions matter, where what you and I do matters, means that our consequences ultimately matter as well. That we can affect not just other people, but even the environment around us. We're seeing this hugely in the environmental struggles of our time and our failure to steward the planet well. But the story goes way back in Genesis to where human beings were set up bearing God's image to do God's work of continuing to bring order out of chaos by being the gardeners and governors of God's good world. We were to be fruitful, to multiply, to subdue the earth and rule over it, to cultivate a wild world beyond the borders of Eden, to frame beauty and build cultures. And yet human beings were given the choice, the freedom, the dignity to either rule God's world according to the moral wisdom that he gave to us, or to try and define good and evil on our own terms. Now, many people look at the world as it currently is and say, this is not a good world. This is a broken or bad world because look at all of the suffering. But the Christian story says that God made the world good, but that it went bad, not because God walked off the job, but because we did. That rather than trusting God's moral design, instead, when we went against the moral grain of God's design, Everything was splintered. The system began to break down. And God's world now is shrouded by evil such that it is under a curse. 
that human beings right now, we don't relate rightly to the natural environment the way that we were ultimately intended to. We're separated from God. There is a distance between us and others. And there is even this distance between us and the created order as well. And because we don't relate rightly to creation, many things that were intended for good now are not functioning the way that they were meant to. There is such a thing as good viruses. In fact, if it weren't for viruses, our biosphere would not work the way that it's meant to. We would have single-celled bacteria consuming all of the Earth's available resources such that higher life forms like us would never be able to exist. Good viruses keep the number of bacteria in check in a delicate balance to allow the development of a vast diversity of life and for us to even exist. And so viruses in and of themselves aren't bad things. It's when they interact with us in bad ways or where we're introduced to viruses that we shouldn't have had contact to in other ways. And so we right now are perhaps just not relating to nature the way that we're ultimately intended, which is why in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul speaks about the, the entire creation itself as groaning in labor pains, suffering a curse, waiting for the future liberation where Jesus will come back to set everything right. And so the Christian story, it speaks into why God's good world has gone bad, why it feels as though something is wrong, because ultimately it is. But I want to pick up then on a fourth phrase, because even though we have some answers to the questions, and even though we have the promise of God's presence with us as a God who grieves and suffers in the Easter story, I want to close with how we should respond in our current time. What does the theology of suffering according to the Bible say when it comes to our reaction here and now? And I want to pick up on this last part in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, where it says this, Though now you have not seen him, this is Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I want to hone in on that phrase, receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There are a ton of Christians around the world who are using an opportunity like this to say that the coronavirus is God's judgment for evil in the world. I think that's a stupid response because God hasn't said so. And other people, when they tried to make these karmic judgments that we're getting what we deserve, like in John 9, where the disciples said to Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus said, that's not how this works. The system itself is broken. People suffer just because they're born into a broken world. We have broken bodies and broken minds, and none of this is because of a person's individual sin. It could just be as a symptom of a fallen world. Yet, in the midst of this, God can still be glorified. You know, there's this adage in politics, never let a good crisis go to waste. And none of us have a usually high level of trust towards politicians. They can be slippery characters and they tend to try and use human suffering for their own particular individual purposes, irrespective of other people's pain. And yet God isn't like a politician. God is better than a politician, not motivated to bring about his own end, but motivated to bring about our ultimate good. And so Romans 8.28 says, for those who love God and are called according to his purposes, he can work together all things things for good. 
And what Peter goes on to describe here is a process whereby God is big enough even to co-opt, to bend suffering, to actually be useful in our own development. Now, I could point to something like what's happening around the world and say, well, God could use this, not create it or cause it, but use it to be able to awaken people to the reality of death and therefore to ask some of life's deepest questions. C.S. Lewis would say to use suffering as a megaphone to rouse a deaf world, to be able to wake it up to its need for a savior from death. But I want to focus here how Peter actually says that it's meant to transform us. Because he hones in on the tested genuineness of our faith, of greater worth than gold, which ultimately is purified as it passes through the fire. And he uses this picture of refinement, of a furnace, of a forge, which melts down precious metals such that the impurities rise to the surface and can be scooped off so that what remains is more pure than the thing before it. You see, Peter here is talking about the end game of our faith, not just the idea of being saved from death or saved from judgment, but actually the idea of being saved not from something, but to something. To actually become the kind of people that we were always intended to be. And in this process, suffering can serve to reveal a whole lot of things in our heart. I wonder what this period has been revealing in your heart. Because within me, some of the things it's been bringing up anxiety, a trust in my own ability to bring about the future. I, as an itinerant speaker, like many, find themselves devoid of work for months. Uh, There are questions of what is my own provision for my family. There is uncertainty about where we'll live and what jobs we'll have. And all of this hardship that can come to us, it's bringing up for me the question of, do I trust in the God who holds my tomorrow or do I trust in my own purposes and plans? God is refining me in this period of time. He's pointing out, as I've got so much time to be at home with my family, what habits have just become part and parcel of what I do every day? What am I giving myself to unhealthily to the degree that it's not helping me become the kind of person that I want to? And so it's drawn out my addictions to technology, my addictions to entertainment, such that I need to rein them back in and focus on building healthy rhythms through this season as I begin to focus on Jesus and the Christian story. It's beginning to show me how busy I had become to spend meaningful face-to-face time with people around me, such that now I don't have the opportunity. I'm desperate to see those whom I love without realizing that I wasn't really present or valuing those opportunities when they were there to love God and love others with my physical presence. And to those of you who are perhaps asking, Man, how should I respond to those who are suffering anxiety or grief or loneliness in this particular moment because of what's happening? This is one of the biggest answers of the Bible, if God, why suffering, is to say that one of the ways we make sense of where is God in the midst of this is he's actually right there with us. You know, at Christmas, we celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. And at Easter, we celebrate the God who suffers with us that he is not immune or distant from our experience, but he promises to never leave us and never forsake us. And one of the greatest things you can do right now to help those around you as we're struggling through this time is to be present. Now, I know that sounds stupid when we're talking about the virtual separation, but think about the ways you can be present, whether present within a meter and a half, present by showing up and giving gifts, present by constant messages of encouragement or thoughts that would lift people's view above where they are, sharing scriptures and musings and devotional thoughts, 
present by being able to make phone calls or to do FaceTimes. A way of being in people's world right now where you can just say, I know this is hard. I wish I could be close physically, but I am still with you. You're deep in my heart and deep in my thoughts. And if you're wondering where is God right now, that's where he is for you. He's not far from any one of us. He's with you, present by his spirit. Now, I'd invite you as we lead now into Passion Week, into the week of Christ's suffering, beginning today with Palm Sunday, focus in afresh on the gospel stories because we can experience them in the visceral way, perhaps for the first time in a generation, that they were intended to be understood. No one called it Good Friday when it happened. No one thought that Easter Sunday was an easy victory when it was happening. There was fear, uncertainty, grief, confusion, death. All of this is part of the reality of the Easter story. And I'd invite you to bathe yourself over this story in the coming week, that God may lift your eyes to the hope that we have in the resurrection of Jesus. Help reframe your understanding of our witness to be able to be offering hope for resurrection life after death. And to be able to ask, what is it that God wants to refine in me through this suffering that the messy stuff can begin to fall away, that I can become the kind of person that he wants me to be, that these months won't be time wasted, but can be used intentionally to love God and love others and become the kind of person he intended me to be. Check out those three questions, discuss them amongst your family, even after the service today. Why is this gospel good news in the midst of the coronavirus? If you had to answer the question, if God, why coronavirus? What would you say? And what is God doing in your life right now through refining you? How can you be intentional about using this time? I pray that you may experience God's presence with you profoundly in the days to come. God bless you. In Jesus' name.